All right, Ezekiel chapter 40. Um, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 to get started. Ezekiel 40, verses 1 through 4. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me into the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. He set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Now, this is 25 years after being taken captive, after Ezekiel was taken captive, and 14 years after the temple and the city were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So this is about 573 B.C. Ezekiel is given a vision of this temple that we're going to be looking at tonight and doing our study. Now, before we go any further into our study, I'm just going to tell you at the start, if you even want to do a study on your own of Ezekiel's temple and you just start Googling it, you will be blown away by how many different interpretations of this passage of Scripture there are. And chapters 40 through 48 have been set, told... Many commentators put it this way. They say this is the hardest to interpret part of the entire Bible. I don't see it as that difficult, but mainly because, as you've heard me say over and over, I take it literally. As the Bible has shown us, the prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming were literally fulfilled. I think that that's how you should interpret the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus' second coming and what's to come after that. If you take them literally, I think it will make a lot of sense and you get kind of excited about it. And we're going to take some time to, take, to show you tonight that what we have here is a vision that God gives Ezekiel of the Millennial Kingdom Temple. And from chapters 40 through 48, just deal with the whole rest of our study of the book of Ezekiel is all about the temple and what's going to be going on, the division of the land, sacrificial system, all that kind of stuff. We're going to get into all that uh, tonight to, to begin our study. We're not going to cover all chapters 40 through 48. We only, won't even finish chapter 40 tonight. All right. But I want you to look closely at the day on which he was given this vision. We know it was 25 years after he was exiled. We know it was 14 years after the city had been destroyed and the temple had been destroyed. What day was it that he was given this vision? The 10th of what month? The first month of the year. You see it? On the first month of the year and the 10th day. Does anybody know what that is? That's kind of cool. And I'm going to show you why that's kind of cool. Go with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, look at verses 1 through 7. When God gives Moses the Passover, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for his household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 
Then they shall take some of the blood and put, the two, put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house, houses in which they eat it. So if you remember, God told Moses, we're going to start the calendar over. This is now the first month of the year. On the 10th day of this month, you're going to take this lamb and welcome it into your house. 14th in the twilight, you're going to kill it. And then you apply the blood. This is the beginning of the Passover. But if you also remember, that's the exact day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was welcomed as the king. Of course, so many days later, they put him to death just like the Passover lamb. And on that day that the Passover lamb was killed, Jesus was put to death. But I want you to see that a little later in our study, we won't cover it tonight, but we'll reference it a few times. This, in this vision, on this day that he's given this vision, he actually sees the Holy Spirit come back in, right into the temple area, just like Jesus did on the 10th day of the month. The Holy Spirit will enter this millennial kingdom temple. So it's kind of cool. Again, every word is God breathed, and it's no accident that God had, gave him this vision on this month, this day. The same day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem was welcomed as the Lamb, and the same day that he's actually going to ride or come back in by the power of the Spirit into the temple complex, which will be during the millennial kingdom. All right? Now, Israel, though, if you notice in the passage here in verse 2, he's taken to the land of Israel, and he's set on a very high mountain. Now, it's interesting. Ezekiel knows the topography of Israel. He's taken to the city of Jerusalem, and he's set on a very high mountain. He could have easily said, it's on Mount so-and-so, but he doesn't say it's on Mount so-and-so that he was put down. All he says is, it's a very high mountain. And I think the reason is, and I'm going to show you from Scripture, it's because at the point that this temple is going to be built, the topography in Israel has been totally changed. But there's going to be a very, very high mountain there in Israel. Let me just reference a few things, and then we're going to look at it in Scripture. If you remember from our study of Revelation, at the end of the tribulation period, there's this massive earthquake on the whole earth, you remember? And all the islands disappear. All the mountains are leveled. And Jerusalem is split into three parts. The center part is raised up high above everything else. And what's north of the city and south of the city are leveled as a plain. Do you remember that in our study? So keep this in mind when he says, I was set on a very high mountain, which I think is scriptural evidence to show, as we're going to look at, that this is the millennial kingdom temple. All right. So let's take a look at that. Go to Ezekiel chapter 17, back up to chapter 17. Look at verses 22 through 24. It says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it where? On a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird and the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I'll bring the low tree. I'll bring low the high tree and make the high the low tree and dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. You remember from our study of this section, this word picture he was giving, he takes, he's going to take a piece of Israel, set it aside, and then one day he's going to plant it on this lofty high mountain and the millennial kingdom is going to begin. Go to Ezekiel chapter 20. We see a little bit more of that. Ezekiel chapter 20, look at verses 40 through 44. 
For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. By the way, don't miss that. That's going to be important for later tonight and in our study next week. But on this holy mountain, God's going to accept their and require their contributions, the choices of your gifts, and with all their sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds. O house of Israel declares the Lord God. So again, on the mountain height of Israel, God's going to do this awesome thing in the millennial kingdom is going to be when it happens. Go to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, and look at verses 1 through 5. It says, The word of, that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. O house of Jacob, come, Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Here we see the prophecy says that in the latter days, the mountain height of Israel is going to be raised up as the highest place when everything else is going to be lower than it. And all I know is Ezekiel is told, has shown he's been put, set down in Israel, in Jerusalem, on this high, lofty mountain. He doesn't know which one it is. Most likely it's Mount Zion, but through, after the top, topographical changes that have gone on. Go to Micah chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. Micah chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 7. Micah 4, verses 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. By the way, does this sound familiar? It's almost word for word what God said through Isaiah. And, and the, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. And ever in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame. I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forever 
more. So once again we see the prophecy in Micah that Israel, in Israel, Jerusalem especially, is going to be lifted up as the highest of the mountains and Jesus is going to rule and reign from there. Go to Revelation chapter 16 and we'll see what I referenced just a second ago. Revelation chapter 16 verses 17 through 21. Revelation 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it's done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake that the great city, Jerusalem, was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the wine of the cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So here we see at the end of the tribulation period, at this last bowl poured into the air, when the last one's poured out, this earthquake happens on the whole earth. Jerusalem split into three parts. We know now from the other prophecies that we've already seen that Jerusalem is going to be raised up higher than everything else. There are no more mountains on the earth Jerusalem is the only one, and people are going to be saying during that time, let's go up to the mountain to hide of the Lord, because the Lord's there, and He's going to teach us from there, and the law's going to come out from Jerusalem, and He's going to judge between nations. That's the millennial kingdom, folks. And Ezekiel is taken to Israel in this vision, and he's set on a lofty mountain, and he's given the vision of this temple. Let me go one more. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. And look at verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> it says in Zechariah 14, verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Now, if you were to go up ahead, I didn't read in the verses just prior to that. There also talks about how the city's going to be split. and There's going to be this big chasm as he steps foot on the Mount of Olives and it's going to be split in two and all this. But there's so many different prophecies there that are, it would take too much time to try to separate each of them. I just showed you this basically, verses 9 and following show again, that Israel's topography is going to be changed. South of the city is going to be flat, north of the city is going to be flat, and the center part where the temple is is going to be raised up as the highest area. And that's where the temple complex is going to be. So this structure, remember he was taken to Israel, he's set on a high lofty mountain, and he's shown this structure to the south that looks like a city. As we will see tonight, it's the temple complex that will be during the millennial kingdom, all right? Now we're going to spend some time tonight breaking down chapter 40 of Ezekiel, and I'm going to be spending most of my time showing you scripturally why this temple area that he's being taken to has to be the Millennial Kingdom temple and it is not any other one. Because as I said, if you were to do a study, you'll find lots of people try to say, well, it's Solomon's temple or it's Zerubbabel's temple that he's shown or it's the temple in the new heaven and the new earth. Or as you're going to see, some people try to say this is just a picture of the church. I'm going to take my time tonight to walk you scripturally through why I believe without question what we see here and what he's going to be shown as we're going to, or was shown that we're going to be studying tonight is the millennial kingdom temple 
during the millennial kingdom, and it can't be any other one, and I'll show you scripturally why. All right? So let's just go back to chapter 40, though, and see that there was a man who was there whose appearance was like bronze in the gateway of the temple complex, and in his hand were two measuring tools. He had a linen cord, which is a long measuring tool for long distances, and he had a measuring reed. We'll do more with this later on, but let me just deal with the measuring reed because you're going to see that when we read the next few verses, but I'll get, explain it to you now because it'll help us. The measuring reed, the scripture is going to tell us when we get to the next verses, is the length of, it's, say it was like a yardstick, if you will, is a measuring stick, was the length of six long cubits. A cubit was 18 inches, which is usually roughly from here to here is their measurement. But a long cubit was the difference. It was a longer than just this to this. It was this plus the width of a man's hand, which is usually about three inches. All right. So a long cubit is 18 inches plus three inches. So a long cubit is 21 inches long. Okay. So if a reed, though, is six long cubits, how long is that measuring stick? It's 10 and a half feet. It's 10 and a half feet long. Keep that in mind. That'll help us later on as we start to see some of the measurements, all right? But I want to talk about this man with the bronze appearance. I think, actually, the man with the, bronze, the appearance of bronze was a theophany. Now, some of you know what I mean when I say that. Others, you may not, but that's okay. A theophany is a pre-incarnate visit to the earth by Jesus, a visit of Jesus. Remember, Jesus always existed. He created the world, and he's God. He didn't just show up when he was born to Mary. Jesus had always existed. It's when he was born to Mary that he took on human flesh. That's what I mean by pre-incarnate, before he took on flesh. There are many theophanies in the Bible where we see Jesus visit the earth as the Bible describes him as the angel of the Lord. You know that there are times that other angels come and people fall down to worship him. And what do those angels do when they fall down? They say, no, get up quick. I'm a servant just like you. But there are instances in the Bible where people fall down before the feet of the angel of the Lord and he doesn't tell them to get up because it's Jesus. It's God himself. I think this is one of those ones and I want to show it to you why. Go to chapter 44. Chapter 44, look at verses 1 through 5. Then he, this is the man who looked like bronze, had the appearance of bronze, brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, did you catch that? Changes from he to the Lord. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way, the vestibule of the gate, and shall go out by the same way. All right, look at the next verse. Then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears that I shall t all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws, and mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary. When, Je when uh, Ezekiel falls before the feet of this man in bronze, does he tell him to get up? No, it's the Lord. I think this man with the appearance of bronze is Jesus showing him what's going to be, which is kind of cool. Now, we'll come back to chapter 43 and 44 in a little bit tonight, dealing with the whole temple gate. We won't go into great detail, but the shutting of the gate, there's been so much confusion over that over the years. And I'm going to clarify it a little bit tonight in a lot more detail when we get to chapter 43. But 
let's just leave it for that for right now. What this man shows him, though, is to be declared to the house of Israel. The whole rest of the book of Ezekiel is what the Lord showed to Ezekiel. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time in our study of Ezekiel looking at everything that God showed Ezekiel in this vision that he's to show to the people of Israel. All right, let's go back to chapter 40 and, look, and read verses 50, uh, 5 through 16. Now, I'm going to read it to you slowly, but it's going to seem like I'm reading it fast. You'll see why in just a little bit. All right, Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 5 through 16. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. Then he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. And the side rooms, one reed long and one reed broad, and the space between the side rooms, five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner end, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and its jams, two cubits, and the vestibule of the gate was at the inner end. And there were inside three side rooms on either side of the east gate. There were three of the same size, and the jams on either side were of the same size. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gateway, 13 cubits. Then there was a barrier before the side rooms, one cubit on either side, and the side rooms were six cubits on either side. Then he measured the gate from the ceiling of the one side room to the ceiling of the other in a breadth of 25 cubits. The openings faced each other. He measured also the vestibule, 20 cubits, and around the vestibule of the gateway was the court. From the front of the gate to the entrance to the front of the inner vestibule of the gate was 50 cubits, and the gate had windows all around, narrowing inwards toward the side rooms and toward their jams. And likewise, the vestibule had windows all around inside and on the jams were palm trees. Y'all good? You got it? You understand what's happened here? I did this for a reason. As you can see, Ezekiel is given some very, very specific measurements. Actually, if you were to take the time to count you would find that Ezekiel is given 318 different specific measurements. He starts with the outside of the wall. He's taken around. You see on your piece of paper, you see the wall that's on the outside. And it's one reed thick, which means how thick is the wall? Ten and a half feet. One, remember, a reed is six long cubits. It's ten and a half feet thick. How tall is the wall? Ten and a half feet high. And then he's taken in the east gate. That's important, and we'll deal with that in a second. But he's taken inside the east gate, and he starts measuring all this stuff. And inside the east gate, there's these three rooms on each side and all this stuff. There are 318 different measurements. We haven't gotten to all of them yet. You're going to see some more in a little bit. And on top of that, there are 37 different construction words that are used, like windows and jams and ceilings and porches and vestibules. It is very, very specific. You'd have measured, he measured this, and he measured that, and he measured that. There isn't a part of this that isn't measured. It's all extremely specific. Now, to try to break down each of these measurements would be very tedious, and we'd probably lose most of you, all right, including me, all right? So what I'm going to do is we're going to take some time just to pull out a few of the instructions that Ezekiel was given in the next few chapters over our next few weeks in order to learn some necessary things and not lose anybody in the process, all right? But the first thing I want to do is to show you that the specific nature of these measurements show us a lot. The fact that he has given such specific measurements and descriptions shows us a lot. The first thing it shows us is this. The instructions are far too specific 
for these instructions to be taken spiritually. Do you understand? Because there are those and many out there who say Ezekiel was given a vision of the church. You remember Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, right? And the Bible describes us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, what this is, is the church. The problem with that interpretation is, how do you figure out what each of these measurements refer to? And how does that all apply to the church? And by as you're going to see a little later on tonight, there's sacrifices in the temple complex. If that's the church, how in the world are there sacrifices being offered and all this? I think that it's a great thing that it's this specific because it blows up the whole, it's spiritual, it's symbolic. You can't go there, as you're going to see later on in our study, not tonight, but we're going to see that it actually lists the certain different types of priests, the Levite, Levite priests and the Zadokian priests, and it's so specific, it can't be taken spiritually. I had one man ask me last night, he goes, well, is there a chance that each of these numbers refer to a Hebrew letter? I said, have fun. But you've already started off on the wrong foot by saying, well, maybe the number refers. You see what I'm saying? Who gets to determine what it symbolizes or how you do it? Take it literally. I think these are actual measurements of what it's going to be. And he's given very specific measurements and he's told, mark it all down because it's important. All right. Now, go ahead. Is it important because it's a template for something in the Without, I believe, yes, it's very important because it's a template for something in the future. And I'm going to take some time tonight to show you how it has to be a totally different temple complex than we've ever seen before. And I'll show you scripturally why. All right. Now, this, these specific measurements also show us that this can't be Solomon's temple. The measurements are not the same. If you were to take the time and go back to 1 Kings chapter 6... And look at the building of the temple when Solomon built the first temple. And it was amazing. The Holy of Holies is the same size in Solomon's temple as it is in Ezekiel's temple. But there are many other things that are not the same. And the specific measurements of Ezekiel's temple show us it can't be Solomon's temple that he's shown. Oh, and by the way, what has happened to Solomon's temple at this time that he's given the vision? It's already been destroyed 14 years earlier. The scripture's already told us it's already been destroyed. It isn't Solomon's temple because the specific measurements show us it can't be Solomon's temple. All right. Also, Solomon's temple, like I said, not only had been destroyed by this, by this time, this vision that he's given about this temple, the spirit of God comes to indwell it and God promises never, ever to leave it. Go with me to Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, look at verses 1 through 9. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 9, Then he led me to the gate that's facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. We saw earlier in chapter 8 of Ezekiel the Holy Spirit leaving Solomon's temple. Remember, before it was destroyed, the Holy Spirit left in a specific pattern, which we're going to get to when we get to chapter 43. I'm going to show you that the same path that the Holy Spirit took in leaving Solomon's temple is the exact same path that the Holy Spirit's going to take to come back into this temple during the Millennial Kingdom. But here we see the Holy Spirit comes to indwell this one forever. can't be Solomon's temple because the Holy Spirit left it 
and the, Holy, uh, the temple was destroyed. So it's not Solomon's temple that he's seen, as some people try to say, all right? All right, now, the specifics of this temple complex also show us that this can't be Zerubbabel's temple, or the second temple built in the time of Ezra in Nehemiah. At this point, the nation of Israel is still in captivity in Babylon, but if you remember from our study, they're there for 70 years, and then they're allowed to go back into the land. And remember, Nehemiah wants to rebuild the walls, and Ezra wants to rebuild the temple, the specific measurements show us, though, this can't be a picture. He's not given the instructions for how to build the second temple because they're not the same. Let me show you what I mean. Go with me to Ezra chapter 3. We've already shown that it's much bigger than Solomon's temple. This temple complex is much bigger than Solomon's temple. And in Ezra chapter 3, look at what happens in verses 8 through 13. It says, now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second, excuse me, second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, this is the second temple now being built after their captivity in Babylon. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with the cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with great, a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers of houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away." They're all excited because the temple foundation's being laid, and all the younger folks are like, praising the Lord because it's being built. But the older men who had seen the size of Solomon's temple were weeping because it's not the same. It's smaller. It's not what we remembered. And they were all weeping and others were praising and the shout was so loud nobody could tell who was doing which. But that shows us that this can't be Zerubbabel's temple that Ezekiel has shown because the specific measurements are very valuable to us because they show us that was the specific members of measurements of the Ezekiel temple complex is way bigger than Solomon's. And the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, was smaller than Solomon's. Can't be the same. And can anybody tell me another reason why we know that this isn't a picture of Zerubbabel's temple from something I've already said about Solomon's temple and this temple? Did the Holy Spirit ever come to indwell Zerubbabel's temple? Never did. Remember, the Holy Spirit left Solomon's temple and never came back. When they built this temple, you study it, you'll find the Holy Spirit never came to indwell the second temple. All right? Now, some people try to think that, that uh, this might be a picture of the temple that Herod enlarged. Remember the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, actually at the time of Herod, he enlarged it. He actually made it bigger. But actually, the same thing. Even though Herod greatly enlarged the second temple, the dimensions of this temple are still greater than the one Herod added to. And on top of that, 
What happened to Herod's temple? It was totally destroyed in A.D. 70. Not one stone left on top of another. Well, didn't we see here that this temple, though, that Ezekiel's shown, the Spirit's going to come to indwell and not leave? The Spirit never came to indwell the second temple, which was enlarged by Herod. And it was destroyed in A.D. 70. This temple complex that Ezekiel's shown in this vision cannot be Solomon's temple. It cannot be Zerubbabel's temple. It cannot be the one that was enlarged by Herod. Some people think it's a third temple that's yet to be built. And it's a possibility that this is a third temple that's yet to be built, but I don't believe so. And I'll show you tonight why. I believe that this is actually a fourth temple that's going to be built. And I'll show you tonight why. But let me explain to you what I mean by a third and then a fourth. We already know the first one was built by who? Solomon. Second one was called Zerubbabel's temple, but it was built by Ezra and, and all. That one was enlarged by Herod. That's the second temple. It was destroyed. Do you know the Bible says there's going to be a third temple? Does anybody know where the scripture talks about a third temple? Actually, in the New Testament, three times a third temple is referenced. It's actually not going to be in Babylon. It's going to be in Jerusalem. I'm sorry? Well, they're not building it now, but they've got all the stuff ready to go to build it whenever they're given permission to do so. There has to be a temple at the end of the tribulation period, remember, in order for the Antichrist to step into the temple. There's got to be a third one for sure, or else the Antichrist can't step into the temple. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sorry? Well, that's the temple complex is in that whole area there about the, around the Western Wall and the Eastern Gate. And we'll talk about the Eastern Gate in just a little bit. <clears throat> but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, Paul says, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, when Paul wrote this, the existing temple... Zerubbabel's temple, which had been enlarged by Herod, still existed when he wrote this, but it was destroyed in AD 70. So Paul's prophecy about the Antichrist, who's going to step into the wing of the temple, must be referring to a third temple that's going to be built. We also know Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, the Jews are to run for their lives. So that's, again, a reference to another temple that's going to be and in Revelation, we're not going to take the time because I've got a lot to cover still. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, if you go there, you'll see during the tribulation period, uh, John's told to go and measure the temple complex that exists at that time. But don't measure the outer court. That's been given over to the Gentiles, and they're going to trample the city for three and a half years. So there's a temple during the tribulation period on the earth in Jerusalem so there's going to be a third temple built. We know. We don't know when. We don't know what is going to precipitate all that. But there has to be a third temple that's going to be built. So this one's the fourth temple that is? I think this is the fourth one. Some people think that this is the third one. In order for this to be the third one that's built, it will have to be cleansed by Jesus before he comes to indwell it because it's been desecrated by the Antichrist. But you remember about that earthquake that we read about? You remember that earthquake that leveled everything on the earth? and split Jerusalem into three parts. I think, personally, the third temple that's going to be the one the Antichrist steps into is going to be destroyed during the end of the tribulation period. 
And there's a scriptural reason why I believe that there's going to be a fourth temple complex and that this is the fourth. Here's where my scripture comes from. Go with me to um, uh, Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. In Zechariah chapter 6, look at verses 12 through 13. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Who's that? It's Jesus. We already know that. The man whose name is the branch, for he shall, be, shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah's prophecy said that the branch is going to build the temple. Now, some people say, well, that's the church, because he said he's going to build his church and we're the temple. Yeah, but there's more specifics there about him then coming and sitting on the throne and the priest sitting there. He's going to be the king and priest. Let me just tell you, I think that Jesus is actually going to build this. Interesting, the man in the appearance of bronze sure knows a lot about it, doesn't he? I think Jesus is going to build the fourth temple complex. Now, one man asked me last night, he goes, do you think he's going to do it in three days? Possibly. You remember how the scripture very clearly says he was referring to his body when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. But we also know that all through scripture, there's dual prophecies. There's a chance Jesus was not only referring to his body, but also hinting at the one that he could build in three days. I don't know. It's just that speculation. Now, some people have said, wait a minute, Jim. Because they don't believe in the millennial kingdom. They'll say this temple is the temple in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what this one is. Can anybody tell me how scripturally we can know for a fact this isn't the temple in the new heaven and the new earth? Right. You're close. You got it. There is no temple in the new heaven and the new earth. Go to Revelation 21. Go to Revelation 21. Yes, ma'am. In uh, Zechariah six fifteen, and those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Oh yeah. Like He's going to build it. Three days. Yeah, well, we don't know. It might it still only take three days with the help. Who knows? You know, I don't know how it's going to play out. Like I say, that three day thing was just a question someone brought up last night. It was interesting. Look at Revelation twenty one verses one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Sorry, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death and shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jump down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamb. So there's no more sun and moon. 
Because the glory of Jesus is what's going to light the eternal state forever and ever, and there's no temple. So this can't be the temple complex in the millennial, I'm sorry, in the new heaven and new earth, because in the new heaven and new earth, there is no temple. Now, write this down and look at it later on, but in Isaiah chapter 4, uh, chapter four Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6, there's a description of Jerusalem where Jesus is during the millennial kingdom, and it says that his Shekinah glory is going to be like a cloud over the, uh, the whole city during the day, or at least the temple complex during the day, and at night it's going to be like fire, and it's going to protect anybody that's underneath it from the scorching of the sun, and if there's a storm, it won't hit them because it's going to be a protection. So Isaiah's prophecy even says that over this temple complex is going to be a protection of the glory of God from storms and from heat during the millennial kingdom. But we also know in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sun, there is no moon, there are no storms, and there is no temple. Are you with me yet, folks? This has to be. This is going to be for a thousand years. Well, everything's going to be gone in the new heaven and the new earth. Go, yes, sir. The Eastern Gate. We're going we're gonna to go right to that right now. I'm glad you're bringing that up. Because, and go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 40 right now. We'll, we'll read uh, quickly. Actually, for the sake of time, what I want to do is, uh, I'm going to read it too fast. I apologize, but I'm going to read verse, verses 17 through 43 pretty quick. Uh, just because I want to cover them, but we're going to refer to it. And we're going to touch on your question about Ezekiel 43. And it's actually a really cool answer. All right. So I'm glad you're asking that. Ezekiel 43, uh, sorry, chapter 40, verses 17 through 43. And then he brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement. All right, you see on your map, where did, where did Ezekiel meet the man in the appearance of bronze? Where was he standing? In the eastern gate. Where did he take him through and show him the inside of that gate? The eastern gate. Don't miss that. Ezekiel and the man in bronze go through the eastern gate. They enter this temple complex through the eastern gate. He's now being taken into the outer court. You see the outer court, and you see where the inner court is, all right? But they go through the eastern gate. That's very important. That'll make Scripture make so much more sense in just a little bit, all right? So he took me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement, and the pavement ran along the sides of the gates corresponding to the length of the gates, and this was the lower pavement. Then he measured the distance from the inner front of the lower gate to the outer front of the inner court, and it's 100 cubits. By the way, it's 175 feet. And on each side, on, on the east side and on the north side, as for the gate that faced toward the north belonging to the outer court, he measured its length and its breadth and its side rooms, three on either side, and its jams and its vestibule were of the same size as those of the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits, and its windows, its vestibule, and its palm trees were the same size as those of the gate that faced toward the east. And by seven steps, people would go up to it, find its vestibule before them, and find its vestibule before them. And opposite the gate on the north, as on the east, was a gate to the inner court. And he measured from gate to gate 100 cubits. And he led me toward the south, and behold, there was a gate on the south, and he measured its jams and its vestibule. They had the same size as the others. Both it and its vestibule had windows all around like the windows of the others. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 25 cubits. And there were seven steps leading up to it, and its vestibule was before them, and it had palm trees on its jams, one on either side. And there was a gate on the south of the inner court, and he measured from gate to gate toward the south 100 cubits. And then he brought me to the inner court through the south gate, 
And he measured the south gate, and it was the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibule were the same size as the others, and both in its vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. And there were vestibules all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits broad. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and palm trees were on its jams, and its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side, and he measured the gate. It was of the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, its vestibule were of the same size as the others. It, and both it and its vestibule had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer court and it had palm trees on its jams on either side and its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gate and he measured it and it had the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, its vestibule were of the same size as the others and it had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer court and it had palm trees on its jams on either side and its stairway had eight steps. Now there was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of this gate, this is the north gate, where the burnt offering was to be washed. And in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. And off to the side on the outside as one goes up to the entrance of the north gate were two tables. And off to the other side of the vestibule of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate, eight tables on which to slaughter. And there were four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and one cubit high on which the instruments were to be laid and with which the burnt offerings and the sacrifices were slaughtered. And hooks a handbreadth long were fastened all around within and on the tables the flesh of the offering was to be laid. All right, let's trace Ezekiel's steps so far because it's going to be of interest later on. All right. Ezekiel meets the man in bronze, appearance of bronze at the entrance to the eastern gate. He's taken through the eastern gate's outer gate into the courtyard, the outer court. He's shown the uh, gate, the eastern gate toward the, uh, toward the inner court, all right? And then he's taken over to the north side, outer gate, and just shown it. And then he's taken around in, on the outer court still, and he's shown the um, south gate on the, to the outer court. But then he's taken through the south gate to the inner court. He's shown the eastern gate on the, to the inner courts inside, and then he's taken and shown the northern gates to the inner, northern gate to the inner court. And that's where he sees all these tables for slaughter for the sacrifices. In that vestibule, there's a door to a room, a chamber where they wash the sacrifices. On each side, there were these tables for the sacrifices. Now, for years, if you even go to Israel now, you'll see that the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem is totally sealed up. And actually, it was sealed by the Muslims. Because of Ezekiel 43 that talks about how the, 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 the Holy Spirit of God is going to come through and the Messiah is going to come through the eastern gate. And so the Muslims, believing the Bible more than maybe even the Jews, sealed up the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And on top of that, they put a cemetery outside the eastern gate because no self-respecting Jew is allowed to walk across a grave. Uh, they'll be unclean. So they make a cemetery so that whenever the Messiah does come, he can't go in the eastern gate because he'll have to go over a cemetery to do it. And it's also sealed up so he can't get through. And many people have said, even many respectable prophecy people that I respect and love and know have saying, Jesus is going to come and blow open that eastern gate. You all heard that. Well, guess what? There's a couple of problems with that. One is this. That's not even the eastern gate that Jesus went through in the first place. The real eastern gate that Jesus went through when he rode on the donkey was it's probably below it somewhere that's been added on to. And on top of that, that's all going to be destroyed 
And they're saying that nobody can go through that gate until Jesus comes through because of Ezekiel 43. Go with me to chapter 44 again. We've already seen in 43 the Spirit of God come through the eastern gate into the temple. In verse 40, chapter 44, verse 1, then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. He's taken out the northern gate, okay? He's taken around the outside of the temple complex, back to that first gate that he went into. And he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. When is the eastern gate going to be shut, according to the scriptures? During the millennial kingdom, after Jesus enters this new complex, once he comes in there, that will be shut then. And no one will go through it then because the Lord has gone through it, and it's holy because of that. This whole talk about the eastern gate and it being shut and all this stuff about the cemetery, folks, that's not the gate. This is a future gate, and I can prove to you that it's not going to be gone through until then because Ezekiel and the man in bronze, or appearance of bronze, go through the gate. He's given the tour, and then he's taken out the northern gate, back around to the eastern gate, and he sees now that it's shut. See, this is the problem. So many people like to read scriptures, but not look at the context. When you take the time to study the scriptures and look at the context, it becomes clear. But by itself, boy, that sounds really good. And of course, the Muslims, the Muslims sealed up the eastern gate. They're fulfilling the prophecy. No, they're not. They're not fulfilling the prophecy. The prophecy is referring to another time during the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes through. And then it's shut after he goes through. It's not shut until he goes through. It's shut when? After he goes through. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Did, did it answer your question? And it's kind of cool when you actually look at it. Folks, this is the Millennial Kingdom Temple Complex. And let me say something to you. You're going to get to see it. You're going to get to walk here. It's going to be an amazing place. The glory of the Lord is going to be there coming from the temple. Jesus is going to be there ruling and reigning and deciding disputes for nations. There's going to be the Shekinah glory over this whole complex to protect you from the heat there and the storms. It's just going to be an amazing place. It's going to be raised up in Jerusalem higher than anything else. And all the people are going to go, let's go up to the mountain of Israel to see the Lord. It's going to be an amazing place. This is literally going to happen. And thank God for the specific measurements that wear us out. By the way, some of you engineers want to sit down and pull out your, you know, charts and your rulers and your slide rules to try to, to go ahead, have fun. Lots of people have tried. And actually, there are some really cool models that have been built that are pretty close to what I think the scripture says. But the, specific, the, the, the instructions are so specific, you can do that. Here's what we're going to do in the time we have left, though. And it's going to launch us into where we're going to go next week. The big question that everybody has, though, is this. Why are there sacrifices? Why are there sacrifices? If Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin, and this is going to be during the millennial kingdom, and Jesus is going to be there, why are there sacrifices? Well, let me, let me say something to you in a certain way that I want you to hear me, so don't get mad. Listen closely to what I'm about to say, all right? We're going to be, begin next week with a study of why there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom when the scripture shows us that Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. Or was he? Did I get your attention? Listen closely to what I just said. 
Was Jesus the final sacrifice for sin? Listen, he was the only sacrifice for sin. We, for years, said that Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin, as if there were other sacrifices for sin. There was never any sacrifices for sin. We're going to read to you in closing tonight. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, and that's where we're going to launch off, off from next week. But the scripture clearly says that the Old Testament sacrifices never took away sin. Folks, Jesus wasn't the final sacrifice for sin. He was the only sacrifice for sin. The Old Testament sacrifices were just a picture of what Jesus was going to do. I have no problem in the millennial kingdom, and I'll show you some more next week, further evidence, actually some other reasons that I'm not going to get to tonight. But I got no problem with there being sacrificial system in the, in the millennial kingdom pointing back to what he's done. How many of you take the Lord's Supper? Are you sacrificing the body of Jesus over and over every time you do it? Then why do you take the Lord's Supper? To remember and as a picture of what he's done. I believe one of the reasons, I'll show you another reason next week. One of the reasons why there'll be a sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom is it will be a reminder of what Jesus has done, just like our Lord's Supper. But also, we saw in that prophecy that the scripture said that he's going to want their sacrifices and their offerings during this time. Folks, it's also going to be preaching to a group of people. Remember, there's going to be people that are born during the millennial kingdom who aren't saved. The, the, the righteous Jews and the righteous Gentiles who are going to be populating the millennial kingdom are going to be making babies. And it's going to be a continual picture of what the one in the temple has done with the sacrificial system. I'll get to next week what I think scripturally is another reason why there's going to have to be sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. But for tonight, just listen. First and foremost, even if it's just a reminder of what Jesus did, I got no problem with that. Because everything that happened prior to the, sacrifi the sacrificial system prior to Jesus' death was just a picture of what Jesus was going to do. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 18. I'll read it to you tonight, and we'll close, and then we'll pick up with this next week. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not des desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We're going to break this passage down in great detail next week. Can't wait to show it to you. There's some amazing theology here, deep, awesome theology. But it's also going to get us ready to understand why there's sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom. I think God's begun to give me insight into this. I've wrestled with it for years myself. And one of the big question marks for people that believe in the millennial kingdom is people going, well, what about the sacrificial system? If Jesus was the last sacrifice, why is there going to be any more? Well, he was never the last sacrifice for sin. He was, first of all, the only sacrifice for sin. And the sacrifices in the Old Testament were to point to what he did. I got no problem with them pointing back to what he did, but there's other reasons as well that I'm going to deal with next week. All right? Until then, I love you. See you next week.